This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. So we take off, it's a VFR day, hardly any clouds in the sky at all. Entering the flight restricted zones, no issue. Around two and a half-ish hours in, I'd like to say, something was wrong. I started to smell smoke, like an acrid kind of electrical smoke. And as I'm looking at my radio stack and everything else, next thing I see, I see smoke starting to billow out of my, my radio stack. And it was starting to fill the top of my windshield. And it was obviously an electrical fire. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Ben Zwebner. Ben is a 737 first officer. He's ATP rated, he's got 6,500 hours flying, but he got his start in general aviation. He's flown GA all over the world in places like South Africa and Israel. He owned his own ferry operation. He's a CFII MEI who flew charter and now he flies with a major airline. Today he's gonna share a story with us about flying in the Washington freeze when things went wrong. Ben, welcome, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. So what happened? (laughs) So this happened relatively early in my professional aviation career. This happened, well, it was my first flight instructor job. I was instructing out of the Montgomery County Air Park in Maryland. They had a couple of Cessna 172s and a Cessna 182. One day, uh, the chief pilot asked me if I'd like to do a photo flight the following day. I said, no problem. He said, it's on the Cessna 182, but I've never flown a 182 before. And, you know, hindsight, where I'm at now, hopping into a 182 is not a big deal, but when all you've flown were 152s and 172s, the 182 was kind of exciting. You know, a lot more horsepower and everything else. Yeah, a little heavier airplane. It feels heavier. It flies heavier, more horsepower. So, yeah, it is a step up for sure. Yeah, and I was excited. He says, we need to do a checkout for you. I said, okay. Unfortunately, due to time constraints, all we had available was roughly a half hour to work on this, to work together on this airplane to get me checked out, which the checkout consisted of, I think, two, maybe three landings in the pattern of the Cessna. And then the next morning, I had to take up a photographer. So the plan was to take up a photographer over Washington, D.C., which means we're going to have to fly into the Washington flight restricted zone. We required to have a law enforcement officer on board. I don't know if you'd like me to go into all the requirements needed to fly into the flight restricted zone. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah. Okay. So to fly into the Washington, D.C. flight restricted zone, you have to have permits. This area of airspace was put in place after or as a result of 9-11 to protect the Capitol, of course. So we had to get background checked. We had waivers given to us. And one of the requirements is to have a law enforcement officer if you're going to be flying within I think it's about seven miles 
from the from the White House. You need to have a law enforcement officer on board. So we had a policeman and a photographer. The mission was to uh, photograph highways that were under construction in the D.C. area. And it was going to be about a three hour flight. So the next morning I show up for the flight, prep the aircraft, the 182, you know, speak with the photographer. He's the photographer is actually going to be sitting in the pilot seat on the 182 because he needed his, I guess, from his angle, he needed that window. So I'd be sitting from the right hand side, which is not a big deal. I'm a flight instructor and the police officer introduced myself and his job was just to sit in the back. So we take off. It's a VFR day, hardly any clouds in the sky at all. And we go off to do our our flight. Entering the flight restricted zones, no issue. Around two and a half-ish hours in, I'd like to say, something was wrong. I started to smell smoke, like an acrid kind of electrical smoke. And as I'm looking at my radio stack and everything else, next thing I see, I see smoke starting to billow out of my, my radio stack, white smoke. Mm. And you know how it looks like when you, like you pour water out of a pitcher from high up? Imagine that upside down with smoke. It was pouring upwards because it was hot. And it was starting to fill the top of my windshield. And it was obviously an electrical fire. Now, how did you know it was an electrical fire? Based on the location of where the smoke was coming from and the smell of it. uh, Long ago in a previous life, when I was a lot younger, I was a volunteer firefighter. So I, I have a, it was a very familiar smell to me. And the fact that it's white smoke, right? So that's a yeah. typically a giveaway of an electrical fire also, and it kind of has a distinctive smell to it. It has a distinctive smell of, of plastics and also, like you said, the, the color of it and the location of it as well. Okay. So you're pretty sure yeah. you got an electrical fire or an overheating of some kind, but it's pretty serious because the smoke is billowing out. Yes. So I start to, you know, your gut instinct is to do what you've been teaching your students all the time. If you have an electrical fire, turn off the battery master, stop the flow of the current, right? But I couldn't do that in my scenario. See, when you're flying in the flight restricted zone, right, you are given a specific transponder code, which indicates to ATC that you are who you are. If I were to turn off my battery master, that code stops transmitting. It goes away. Right. And if you are right over the White House, and you do something suspicious, and then you turn off your master battery so you have no power to your radios, you can't communicate, there are people out there who are watching you, and they might think you're doing something nefarious. Now, where were you about when this started happening? I was pretty much right over DCA Airport. I was outside of the, there's a prohibited area called P-56, which covers the White House, Lincoln Memorial, the National Mall area. Yeah, I was I was not in that, but I was as close as you could get to it at the time. I got you. Okay, so you're right in the middle of the freeze. It's not like you were right on the edge or anything. You're right in the middle of it. I was right in the middle of it, and I was heading uh, I was heading westbound when it happened. And uh, when the smoke started, my instinct was turn off the battery master. Then I stopped myself. No, I can't do that because they might think things. So instead. First, I declared emergency so they would know that I'm an emergency aircraft. It's the only time I think in my life that I've ever used the the, the mayday, 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 because it was a busy frequency. And I explained that uh, I have a a fire on board. Air traffic control, of course, offered assistance, uh, and they asked me what I'd like to do. And I said, I want to land near a suitable airport. So they said, DCA is 0.5 behind you. Uh, That's Washington National. So I said, I'll take it. And once I made that initial communication, now I figured I could start turning radios off and on and trying to isolate this problem because that way, now they know what's going on with me. 
and you've told them you've had a fire and you've declared your intentions. And so now if they, if they have sporadic indications, whatever they might be, radar or otherwise, then they know you are dealing with a problem. Yeah. The photographer at this point was getting a little bit nervous. He was visibly nervous. And he kept saying, what do I do? What can I do? What can I do? So I gave him the little fire extinguisher to hold. I said, just hold this in case. So I put him on fire extinguisher watch. I started troubleshooting the problem. As I was troubleshooting it, what I decided to do was isolate the units. There was there was a COM1, a COM2. There was a NAV1, NAV2. Uh, there was a Loran on it for some reason. Um, and an ADF unit in the radio stack. Okay. So I started just going one by one, turning them off. By the way, is smoke still billowing out of the stack? Uh, yeah, at this point, it's still going. Okay. Uh, it all happened quicker than it sounds like in the narration, right? But it, it's, it's all happening. Sure, yeah. So I, I just start from the top of the stack, and I work my way down. I turn off radio one, smoke still happens. I turn off radio two, smoke still happens. I turn radio one back on at that point, because I've determined that it's not coming from radio one. Right. Then I move on down to the Loran unit turn off the Loran, which was on for some reason, that was the culprit. It stopped the smoke. Hmm. Now, at this point, air traffic control is asking me for fuel and souls on board. So I tell them three souls on board. I believe the fuel left was about an hour and a half, something like that, because we were in the air for a substantial amount of time. And he tells me that I am cleared to land any runway DCA. So not knowing how severe the fire is and everything else, if it's still going or not, I felt, felt that I isolated it. I opened up air vents to get fresh air into the cabin where I didn't before because I didn't want to introduce more oxygen into a possible fire. Now that I felt that I isolated it, I ventilated the cabin and I entered what's called a steep spiral, which I'm sure you guys remember from your commercial pilots course, any of you who've done it. Put carburetor heat on, mixture full rich. I just started to spiral down towards the deck. What altitude were you when this all started? 7,500. Okay. So that's pretty high for a Cessna. Yeah. Uh, and I just started spiraling down. And they, again, remind me that I'm clear to land on any runway. So I'm thinking, of course, runway 19. That's a nice big runway. But as I am determining how to set up for it, the way I was coming out of the turn, I was over the field turning northbound. If I continued further northbound, I would have gone into P-56, the prohibited area. I couldn't do that. So I opted to enter a downwind for runway 15 instead. As I'm turning to 1.5, I see an Embraer 195. It was a JetBlue Embraer 195 conducting a missed approach, and he was right off my wing, and it was a lot going on. Given that this is my first time flying the 182, I was still treating it a little bit like a Cessna 172 in a way. Meaning what? Well, new aircraft, different handling characteristics. I, I was high. Okay. I was a lot more comfortable in 172, of course, and I was high. Uh, there was a person, I don't know on the radio who said it. I'm assuming it was an Embraer 145 pilot who was holding short of runway 15. He, he said to me, slip it in over the radio because he could see I was high as well. So I'm like, that's a great idea. <laughs> so I, I put the aircraft into a forward slip, lose a lot of altitude, and I come down to the deck, and I'm I'm definitely fast. And I, I touch down, and it's one of the ugliest landings I've ever done in my life. And everyone's watching. It was like a porpoise, three three porpoises uh, before touching down. Again, I've only had three landings in a 182 prior to this. Yeah, and plus you were you were fast, and that's typically the setup for bad landing is usually too much speed. Absolutely. So we landed. I cleared the runway. There's a small taxiway connector there. I forget the name of it. We taxi. We clear. 
I stopped the aircraft. I shut it down. Got the photographer and the policeman out. I made sure the aircraft was secure. I exited the airplane. And no less than, it was two fire trucks and two ambulances, I believe, showed up to the Cessna 182. Fire marshal came out. They have a heat ray gun kind of thing that pinpoints where hot spots are. And they identified the uh, Loran as a hot device. They also popped the engine cowl just to make sure there was no engine fire or danger of that. At that point, they felt that the aircraft was safe to taxi, and they asked me if I could taxi it to the FBO. I said, I have no problem with that. So they took the photographer and the police officer in their car, and they drove off. And I'm stuck on this ramp with a plane. We just put the cowl on again, and it's just me with this plane. I get on the ground control, and he asks me if I know where the signature FBO is. And I said to him, sir, please don't think any less of me, but this is the last airport on Earth I ever thought I'd ever land at. <laughs> I don't have a taxi chart with me. This is before the time of iPads, so it's not something that was readily available. So I got Progressive Taxi to Signature and uh, met with the airport ops manager. I met with NTSB, with the TSA. They all wanted to get my statement. And uh, that was it. Signature didn't charge me a ramp fee, which was very kind <laughs> of them. <laughs> Being a pilot is about passion and dedication. The early mornings, hours invested, constantly learning procedures and details. There's a lot to do. Membership in AOPA makes doing the groundwork easier so you can get into the sky. With the power of thousands of pilots united behind you, get access to exclusive resources, practical benefits, and fierce advocacy that helps enhance and protect your freedom to fly. Join us. Visit aopa.org membership or give us a call at 800-872-2672. Wow, what what an interesting ordeal. So just a photo flight, which goes well for two and a half hours, and then suddenly the smoke. So there's some good lessons learned that come out of this. First is just being able to identify what kind of smoke and what kind of fire you might be dealing with. We talked about that a little bit, but white smoke, the acrid smell, uh, it's coming out of electronics. That's a big indicator. But those are typically your indicators of some kind of electrical fire. And like you did, the suggestion of, you know, if you don't need it, you can just shut everything off and come back in VFR. But you couldn't really do that. So now you just have to start isolating the equipment one by one to see if you can figure out which one it is, which turns out that went well for you. And you, you were able to isolate that it was the Loran. Yeah. It's a good point also about the smoke. I had a different scenario when I was ferrying an aircraft once where I had black smoke coming in the flight deck, which ended up being excess grease for some reason in the air ducts of the heating system. Yeah, typically associated with some kind of engine problem or, you know, if there is a fire, it's usually around the engine or oil-related or fuel-related. You know, I would say much more serious problem, but the reality is both of them are very serious problems. I, you know, it, it, it just depends. A fire airborne is just a serious problem regardless of what kind it is. Terribly serious. Uh, it's also... For me, what it was, you know, people always, you know, uh, stress takeoffs and landings. Things can go wrong at any, this is what my lesson from this was, that things can happen at any point in time. And you might be droning along and cruise for two and a half hours and everything's going great, but at any moment, an emergency could happen, which is why you have to stay vigilant and be, and be ready. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this, looking back in hindsight. So once you isolate that it's the Loran, you turn the Loran off. Why not just tell the controller, hey, I've isolated the problem. I'm going to head back to Gaithersburg. I don't know the status of the airplane anymore. Yeah. 
that's kind of my thinking, Ben, is that, yeah, you're pretty sure you're isolated, which is a good thing, but you don't know if there's something still smoldering. What if that electrical heat caught on to something else on fire insulation or something, fabric or something inside the airplane? So, yeah, I don't know. You can't be 100% sure that that fire's not still smoldering somewhere. No, I agree. At that point in time, you have an airplane that you can no longer trust. Yeah. So you have to put it on the ground. And I, I love the fact that you weren't intimidated by the fact that you were in the freeze. It's Reagan National. So, you know, you're, you, you could be intimidated by that, but you weren't. You recognize, hey, I've got a problem and there's controllers here. You fessed up to them. They immediately help you out. It just sounds like the whole system operated optimally in my mind for, you know, a guy like you that has a problem like that. They were they were top notch from Potomac to the tower controllers at DCA were incredible. In hindsight, they even told me that I could have gone through the P-56 area under the situation that I was in if I needed to. They didn't make that clear to me in the air. That happened in hindsight. They told me that they were very accommodating. The moment uh, you declared an emergency, and this isn't the only emergency I've had in my career, but the moment you declare an emergency, air traffic control will bend over backwards to help you out with whatever means you know they can that's been my observation too and well, i'm with you though that p56 i mean that's that's the white house i mean they have some pretty serious uh, armor <laughs> weapons <laughs> around that so even with an emergency i would be reluctant to go in there just like you were so mm -hmm. and it doesn't look like it i mean it maybe caused you a little bit of an issue made you be higher on final than you wanted to be maybe or something but I'm with you. I, I would have avoided that just like you did. Well, I did all my training in the Washington, D.C. area. So from my very first lesson, it's always been you respect the FRZ. You stay away from the prohibited, prohibited areas. You know, there's P-40 up around Frederick, which is Camp David. So it's in the back, you know, it's in my mind all the time. Stay away, stay away, stay away. Yeah. It doesn't get any more serious than that airspace, I don't think. And so I also find it interesting so that you're coming into runway 15. I mean, it's a relatively long run. It was like 5,000 feet or something. But you're high. And obviously you were high because somebody pipes up on the frequency and says, slip it in. And you found that helpful, not intrusive, but you actually found that to be a helpful comment. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in aviation. We help each other out. Um, you should always be open to suggestions. That's part of crew resource management. It's, well, when you're flying with a multi-pilot crew and you're a captain, it's not just your way or the highway. You look for other people's suggestions, ideas. So I'm flying it and I'm in the moment, somebody on the ground who has the, the benefit of not being in an emergency. Right. Gave me a piece of advice. I'm like, you know what? They're right. Because it didn't occur to yeah. me at the time because I was just trying to fly the aircraft. And of course, it was my first emergency and adrenaline's pumping. So when someone from the outside can give you a piece of advice that kind of brings you back into, uh, you know, uh, well, that brings up an option that you didn't consider, it's very helpful. Yeah. And it kind of shows the benefit of sitting at zero knots in 1G, right? He's sitting there in his airplane waiting to take off under no stress, zero knots in 1G. Meanwhile, you're, in, you're airborne. You were an instructor. Of course, you knew how to slip an airplane, but there's so much going through your mind that all you needed was just that little reminder. Hey, slip it in. Ah, yeah, great idea. Mm -hmm. And so it turned out to be a helpful comment. And I think importantly, too, for when you're helping people, it was really quick. He got in on the, he saw the situation, got on the radio. Hey, slip it in, got off. Yeah. No more extensive dialogue, right? 
It yeah. was one comment. That's all it was. Slip her in. That's all it was. Slip her in. I'm like, yeah, great idea. You know, I, I, I don't think I, I, I said thank you. I don't think I keyed the mic. <laughs> <laughs> and so tell us about, you must have been handling this in a really calm, collected way. So you must have really had yourself collected going through this uh, ordeal. Yeah, I, it's it's your first emergency. You never know how you're going to really react. Uh, it's not my first time being exposed to high stress situations. I have a I have a I served in the military in the past, you know. So, but like the training kicks in, the procedures kick in. People at, when I tell the story, people ask if I was afraid. The answer is not until I got on the ground. I I it, you just go into I need to troubleshoot the problem. What's happening? What's this? This here? Where am I at? And your brain just goes into, at least minded, to this like hyperdrive mode of location, communication, aircraft status. Are we all wearing our seatbelts? What's my next step? What's my immediate next step that I need to do? And I just went through the motions. And you have adrenaline going, but as far as like getting nervous about something or panicking, it never helps. But after I got on the ground, um, I took a moment. You yeah. Know? And now how about your right seater? It sounded like you did well in managing his anxiety. It sounds like that began to build a little bit and you were able to sort of keep that at bay. Yeah, I mean, after he was, um, after he got into the the car with the uh, fire marshal there at the DCA, uh, I didn't really see him again. But giving him the fire extinguisher gave him something to do, which can distract his mind from panic. Yeah. And probably gave him some relief. Yeah. Knowing that he had a fire extinguisher there, if it you know got too bad, he could actually do something about it. Now, what happened after you after you landed and you taxied in? Did you, how'd you get the airplane back to Gaithersburg eventually? Well, the airplane sat there for a while. So once we got in, I was met with the uh, director of the airport operations came out. TSA had a representative come out. They all took statements, like I said. I got to go in and watch security footage of my landing. It was embarrassing, but I'll take it. And the plane sat on the ramp for a while because while we had a waiver to fly through the the flight restricted zone, we did not have a waiver to land at DCA. There's a whole different that's a whole different you know ball of wax. Mm. So uh, the chief pilot actually ended up flying the plane out a couple weeks later. You know they had to get special permits and things, but the chief pilot went back to get the aircraft. Yeah. Wow, what an interesting uh, ordeal in an interesting place to have it. I mean, just having an electrical issue like that is stressful in and of itself. Add the fact that you're in a freeze with all kinds of restricted airspace and guns pointing at you if you're going the wrong way. Uh, yeah, that amps it up a little bit. A, a little bit. That, that was just the forefront of my mind was uh, my hand went towards that, batter, that master battery, but then I thought about the optics. A plane flying over the White House shuts off its transponder and enters a dive towards DCA, but they would see it as the White House because it's so close. Mm, mm. It doesn't look good. And I, I knew I couldn't handle it like I would handle, you know, the emergency anywhere else I'd be flying. Yeah, good thinking on your part. Well, what an interesting ordeal. So, Ben, you're on social media. Share with us where you are on social media so our listeners can go find you. Yeah, uh, they can find me mostly on TikTok. I try to bring educational, fun aviation content to it. The username is Flying for a Living. Flying, the number four, a living. Nice. Well, Ben, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. And we're glad that uh, you made it out without incident. And nice job getting it on the deck. 
Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Where there's a stressful flight, things are going well for the first two hours and the last seven minutes from May Day to touchdown, pretty stressful. And it reinforces the adage, anytime something abnormal happens in the airplane, maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation and take proper action. And analyze the situation, it wasn't just the systems problem and the fire or heat that he had and the smoke in the cockpit. It was the situation of where he was being in the Washington freeze around so much restricted airspace. So Ben did a nice job working through all those steps and getting it on the ground safely and without incident. And we're glad he shared his story with us. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.